Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates, providing intensive therapy, individualized academic instruction, and social skills training for children with autism. Behavior Associates analysts develop an individualized treatment plan for each child receiving services. Presenting sponsor of The Facing Project, more at BehaviorABA.com. We've all seen and read the stories of those with disabilities portrayed as secondary characters. They're in the background to support the able-bodied lead in their quest for love, adventure, and success. But what if the script were flipped and those with a disability were the main character of their own story finding, well, love, adventure, and success? I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we explore Reclaiming the Disabled Narrative. The word disability can mean a variety of things. It covers a vast spectrum from physical to intellectual. It can be outwardly noticeable or sometimes not that noticeable at all. But the commonality among all people with a disability is the right to own their own story and tell it however they choose. Far too often though, they have been regulated to the background by able-bodied people or shared as a sob story to tug at heartstrings. And let's be honest, Because society has programmed itself to focus on the ins and outs of able-bodied people and centering their stories, it's continued to perpetuate the stereotype that anyone with a disability needs constant care and attention that can only be given by able-bodied people. Of course, that's absolutely just not true. That's why today we're focusing on individuals with disabilities who have reclaimed their narratives. We'll hear from a polio survivor who loves to dance, a former runner with an autoimmune disorder who is finding a new path, and a college student with autism who asks us to pay attention. Later in the show, I'm joined by global disability influencer Monica Ingle Thomas, who has reclaimed her own narrative and uses it to inspire others. Carrie, Sandy Penrod's story, as told to Jennifer Stanley, performed by Beth Neri. I learned to walk when I was two. Until then, I was carried or scooted myself where I needed to go because the iron leg braces I wore went from the bottom of my feet to my hips and wouldn't bend at all. But even after I got the motions down, I still practiced every day on the front lawn with the wooden parallel bars my dad made for me. Our neighbors sat on his front porch steps across the street and watched. He always cried big, fat, silent tears. I didn't understand why my neighbor cried for me. I've always had a spirit of determination. Being a polio survivor is all that I know. I contracted polio during the epidemic in 1949. I was nine months old. At the time, it was the worst fear of parents with young kids. But my mom and dad made the best of it. They treated me just like my siblings and other kids. In the summers before elementary school, I went to Camp Eisenagle to swim and play. There were other children with disabilities. Some kids wore leg braces like me, but others were challenged with different physical limitations or intellectual disabilities. We were all the same in that we were different. It was fun, and I felt accepted. But all of that changed when I started kindergarten. On my first day at Harry Mock School, I was five years old, wore a size three dress, and weighed 25 pounds. I could barely see over the teacher's desk. I was nervous, 
Just like most new kindergarten students, I expected challenges, but I was not prepared for the shock and confusion of being put in the basement. They didn't know what to do with us students with physical or intellectual disabilities, so we went to the basement beneath the regular classrooms for our special schooling. I don't remember much about kindergarten through second grade, but I'm pretty sure I lost more than just proper education down there. By the time I went into a mainstream classroom in third grade, my can-do spirit had started to fade. There wasn't one particular bully who beat me down. My erosion happened gradually, as day after day, year after year, I was the girl without a best friend, the one picked last for teams, and the easy target of primary school humor. But when I was in eighth grade, my dad decided we were leaving the city, and I started at Eaton School out in the county. I didn't know it at the time, but my first teacher, Mr. Bixler, told the class, there's a new girl coming today, and she's handicapped. Better not ever hear of anyone making fun of her, ever. And they didn't. In fact, I met my best friend, Cynthia, there. We're still best friends to this day. Then the first junior high school dance came, and a boy asked me to dance. His name was Rick, and he didn't ask on a dare or because he felt sorry for me. He asked because he wanted to slow dance with me. Since then, I've always loved to dance. In high school, my class visited Wyandotte Cave in southern Indiana to explore the long, dark, and damp terrain of the underground. I knew before we started it would be a difficult path, but it never occurred to me not to go. I was always up for an adventure. During the last stretch, I couldn't walk any farther. I simply couldn't go anymore. My friends came around me, laced their hands together underneath me. They took turns making baskets with their arms, and they carried me the rest of the way out. I realize now I never would have gone into that cave if I didn't trust that my friends would be sure I made it all the way through. I wasn't afraid because I knew I was accepted and safe. High school was full of fond memories and wonderful friendships. I was even voted most witty in my senior class. I wish I could say that my whole life was happy, like high school, but I've had a couple of bad marriages and years when the heartache of my past caught up with me. My determined spirit dissolved. I stopped working. I stopped socializing. I stopped caring. I was content to raise my daughter and collect a welfare check. Fortunately, the welfare department didn't want me to stay home any longer, and they found a job for me as a receptionist. <laughs> Tried to fail my typing test, but they hired me anyway. It was the best thing that could have happened. I've been in that job now for over 40 years, and I can't imagine working anywhere else. I'm now the administrative manager. I oversee front office duties and client records. Every day I ask myself what my team and I can do to make someone else's job better. Overall, my life has been good. I'm happily married, and I love spending time playing, and yes, dancing, with my grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> 
as often as possible. Finding My Way, Antonio Kyoko's story as told to Deidre Lane, performed by Carl Frost. I was vacationing in the Wisconsin Dells and was looking forward to time with family and a chance to start running. I love tall trees. I love winding roads. If I close my eyes, I can see that day. I remember it was so peaceful. Everything was perfect. And then I wasn't feeling right as we traveled home. We stopped in an emergency room and the doctor thought it was a stomach flu. But after being back home for several days, I still wasn't feeling well, so I went to my own doctor and then on to the ER. And no one could figure out what was going on. Within days, I was struggling to walk. Someone in our church suspected the condition, and they were right. I was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, an autoimmune illness which lasts several days and leaves long-lasting effects. For months, I required constant care. I learned to walk again, to swallow, to enunciate. I'm soft-spoken, and now it was even harder to hear me. I felt like my independence was gone. Eventually, I went to work with a walker. I was mentally exhausted the first day, but on the right road. My wife Ruth and I have always been active in our community. We'd saved up a lot of goodwill. I've always believed in the compassion of others, something I learned from my mom. After I got sick, there were so many people who came to help. Without that, Ruth would have been caring for me by herself. It's important to genuinely invest in people. We need to build lasting relationships and act in a genuine, caring, and compassionate way. As difficult as this time was, I found success. I was promoted several times. I co-founded a nonprofit. As I learned to dream differently, I wanted others to find their own dreams. The path you go down may not be the one you thought. People think there's only one way to achieve, but there are always options. You have to believe. Maybe you're asking, what can I do? What you can do is listen and understand. Inspire hope or help find solutions. You can enable people to live their best lives. When you pay attention and hear stories, you find what you have in common. Pay attention. Carter Tharp's story, as told to Jamie Reese, performed by Charlie Isaacs. I feel like I'm inside a little white box, writing all my thoughts and feelings with a dry erase marker, but no one can find me to understand what I'm going through. I erase those thoughts and feelings myself, but some things I write in permanent marker, and they'll never be forgotten. If you could come inside, you would see the conversations I've had with you, the experiences I've shared, and the journey of my life you would understand me. But I cover what I do not want you to see. I put away what I do not want lost. I'll tell you if you let me, though. They may not matter to you, but they matter to me. The secrets of my mind are my secrets, and not for you to know. I don't tell you because I don't see you understanding anyway. You think you do, but you really don't. It's hard for me to look you in the eye, even harder to be around you. Try learning when people talk so fast and think even quicker. 
You don't have the patience to wait for my response. Instead, you avoid my words as if I should know to say what you want me to say. This overwhelms me. I'm going to open this white box for a moment. The first thing people notice about me is that I'm quiet. I'm quiet because I don't know what to say. I see people in a group and I watch them talk to each other. Their lips move, laughter erupts, and their eyes brighten at the thought of the next word they are going to say. Instead of words coming to my mind to join their conversations, I watch them and think about their words. When they turn to me to join, my mind becomes blank. Everyone I know is an extrovert. They know what to say. I don't know how I'm like other kids with autism. I wish I knew more about autism. I know that I'm not like other kids because I'm quiet. Other kids can pedal a bike. They can lie. If you want me to lie, forget it. The main difference between me and other kids is that they're outgoing. Some are loud, but I ignore those kinds of kids. Being overwhelmed is the worst feeling ever. It makes my brain get dizzy and causes the noises to get louder. It gets on my nerves. Teachers could help by not overwhelming me. The perfect school would have three floors and a big pool. Teachers wouldn't give a lot of homework. The only classes that would be at that school are cooking and science. Science is the best class. Well, the experiments with chemicals are the best part. The stupid work is my weakness. I have a village I created on Minecraft. The hideout is hot on camp. The bandits lurk around in the corners. I've created secret rooms and passageways deep underground so they can't find my treasures and livestock. The fort is called All Attack. It has an escape path. I'm building a new fort. I think I have a good shot at being a game designer when I grow up. Sure, I have to try harder to learn. Multiple choice tests are not clear. If my grades were based on homework, I'd probably get all A's. My mom helps me through it, and she pushes me and makes me work hard. She always judges my writing. When I do my homework wrong, she's there to help me get it right. At least I am not confused about what she wants. Teachers, on the other hand, are not clear. I ask a question about the assignment and they answer me quickly and get back to being busy. Something a little weird about me is that I don't go out a lot. It feels normal to be home. I don't think anyone knows I have autism when they first meet me. If you try to have a conversation with me, you'll realize I am quiet and think about things differently than you do. At night, I curl up with my weighted blankets and bury my head to get comfy. What do you need to know about autism? If other kids with autism are like me, then here's what you should know. People shouldn't talk like stories. Be more plain. Come out with it. Stop being confusing. Stimming helps me when I am overwhelmed. I tap the plastic hanger against my legs, arms, and sometimes my chin. I also hit it against the back of furniture, which has caused some damage to our couch. If I can't use my hanger, then I walk in pace. You might find me gently tapping myself as if I had the hanger. I chew gum. When I get home, though, I get my hanger. I do it when I want, but only at home. I love to be close to you. It makes me feel safe and to understand you better. I also like to be touched. I used to get my skin brushed, though not so much anymore. I still like it, though. Don't think I've forgotten something just because I don't talk about it. I remember. I know what right and wrong is. I am like everyone else in that area. In reality, I'm better at it. If you're autistic, you should get a stick or a hanger and try stimming. It will help you. All right, I think we're done. I like being heard, but I feel overwhelmed.
I recently caught up with Carter's mom, and she shared that he graduated from high school where he was a member of the National Honor Society and a varsity swimmer for three years. He went on to earn an associate's degree cum laude in general studies and is continuing his education in physical therapy. On top of all of that, Carter has also obtained his lifeguard certification and works as a lifeguard during the summer months. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates, providing intensive therapy, individualized academic instruction, and social skills training for children with autism. Behavior Associates analysts develop an individualized treatment plan for each child receiving services. Presenting sponsor of The Facing Project, more at BehaviorABA.com. I want to welcome to the show Monica Ingle Thomas, a disability influencer and Charcot-Marie Tooth Warrior who's reclaiming the disabled narrative. Hey, Monica, thank you for joining me. Hi, JR. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start at the beginning. So you were born with Charcot-Marie Tooth, or CMT for short. For our Mm -hmm. listeners who may not be familiar with the disorder, what is it and how does it impact you? So Charcot-Marie Tooth, or and I will refer to it as CMT because it's much quicker to say, is a hereditary peripheral neuropathy. So it is a genetic progressive disease. And essentially what it means is that the nerves in the peripheral nervous system, so those are the nerves outside of the brain and spinal cord, um, my brain does not send the right signals to them. And so the nerves inside my muscles Uh, don't work. They don't stimulate the muscles. And so over time, those muscles atrophy and wither away. There's currently no real treatments or cures for it. It is progressive. I was diagnosed when I was just two years old. I started wearing leg braces at the age of five years old, started using a wheelchair um, in middle school, kind of on and off, and then have been a full-time wheelchair user, unable to stand or walk at all for about the last 10 years. And I've known you for quite some time, and Mm -hmm. I follow you on all the social media channels. And what I find really amazing about the work you're doing, you're reclaiming the disabled narrative by being a disability influencer. You demonstrate products as life hacks for people with disabilities. Recently, you did one for Topgolf, and it was amazing. I have to be honest, (laughs) I watched it like three or four times. How did you get into all of that? So really, it all started with Instagram. Um, I got on Instagram and, you know, just posted selfies like most people do. And then I started seeing the disability hashtags and I started seeing other women in wheelchairs posting their full bodies in wheelchairs, which is something that I had never done. My disability was something that I always tried to hide a little bit. Um, and then I just kind of got to the point where it was like, what, why am I doing this? I'm so visibly disabled. There's no point in trying to hide it. And through these other women that I you know, was seeing, I just decided to start living more out loud. And um, in doing that, I started connecting with a lot of other disabled people um, on Instagram, especially. And I realized that I had this kind of unique skill set of making the abled world around me work for my disabled body. And I realized that this was something that I should share with other people um, because disability can be so isolated 
isolating. You're so often left sitting on the sidelines. And I was tired of living that way. And I wanted to show people that we can do fun things. We can, you know, live our lives in this, um, you know, quote unquote, normal way. And um, I just wanted to help people do that. And so that's why I make these videos to show people um, these are these hacks that you can, you know, use to kind of live in an able-bodied world. And I have to say, too, as someone who is able-bodied, I even learn a ton from your hacks, things I would have never thought about that even, you know, regardless if somebody is able-bodied or disabled, they're able to use. And I think that is amazing, too. I know even though your target audience um, is the the uh, disabled community. Are there folks in your life, I know that CMT is a hereditary, and because I know you personally as well, I know um, that, you know, others in your family are affected by this. Has your influence, disability influencing, have you seen that impact their lives in a positive way? You know, I have, and I have a very concrete example of that, actually. Um, so my dad is, um, he has CMT. His was never as severe as mine. It presented much later in his life. Um, I always give the example of I got my first pair of leg braces at five. He got his at 50. Mm. So, um, and this past year, he got very, very sick with the flu, um, ended up being in the hospital for a month, completely bedridden. And because CMT is a progressive muscle wasting disease, when you're not using those muscles for that long, the atrophy just really speeds along. And so he was having all of these, even though he's had CMT his whole life, he was having all of these new uh, challenges that he wasn't used to transferring from a wheelchair. Um, his hands are getting weaker because CMT, you know, also affects the hands. And so I was able to kind of be his uh, CMT guru mm -hmm. for um, those, you know, those weeks where he was in physical therapy recovering. Um, I remember specifically being in the hospital room with him and he was having a hard time pressing the remote buttons. And he turned to me, he said, you got any hacks for this? And I said, yeah, use your knuckle. You can get more strength there. And uh. he did it. And, you know, he was like, all right, that works. <laughs> and so, you know, I just, I really, really did. Um, I hated seeing him go through that, but I enjoyed being able to share that very very uh, unique, specific knowledge with somebody. Yeah, close to you. Mm -hmm. Thinking about your own journey on reclaiming the narrative, uh, what has been some other favorite moments of yours, you know, connecting with strangers, or maybe it's even a product that you were promoting? Is there a favorite moment that you have? You know, really, it's anytime I get a message from somebody from anywhere in the world that says, your content has helped me in this way. Like, you know, people will message me and tell me that, you know, a video I posted has helped make their life easier in some way, or that the things that I do matter. And I think that's all anybody really wants is for what we're doing in life to matter to somebody, to have some kind of effect. And so when I get those messages, it's so validating and it just, it feels so good. So anytime that happens, that's a favorite moment. Yeah. If you could change one thing about how society responds to the disabled community, what would that be? Um, it really goes to the core of reclaiming the disabled narrative because um, what the current disabled narrative is out there is that disabled people are either tragic or inspirational. We in the stories that are told about us, we are only those two things. We serve as vehicles to move an able-bodied person's story along. Um, and, and it's getting better, but 
that's the number one thing that I'm trying to change and that I want to change because anybody can become disabled at any time. We're the most diverse, marginalized group out there. Um, if you live long enough, you will become disabled. So the idea that this entire group of people can only be those two things is ludicrous and it has mm -hmm. to change. <laughs> yeah. And you are well on your way on making that kind of change happen. And we see it also in literature, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm a huge fan. I think people may know this about me by now that I'm a big fan of young adult literature and young adult is doing amazing, mm -hmm. amazing work on putting um, folks who often were considered marginalized. I don't love that word, but that's a word that folks right. often <laughs> will use. Um, those who were often marginalized front and center to reclaim their own stories. And you are doing that work in so many ways. So Monica Ingle Thomas, disability influencer, Charcot Marie Tooth Warrior, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. To learn more about Monica's work, Find her on Instagram at Monica Ingle Thomas. I want to revisit what I shared at the beginning of today's episode regarding people with disabilities as secondary characters. The world around us is changing. Despite the despair we may feel from time to time, it's progressing more than it's regressing, even when some days it doesn't feel that way. But we have to hold on to hope that the arc of the moral universe does bend toward justice, just like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shared over 50 years ago. People like Monica and Sandy and Antonio and Carter are putting themselves at the center of their stories and inspiring others to do the same. They are not secondary characters, but influencers and leaders who are taking on the world in all ways possible. And the commonality among all people with a disability is the right to own their own story and to tell it however they choose. We're seeing this more and more in pop culture and literature, and let's just say I'm here for it. I recently finished The Pretty One by Kia Brown. It's a memoir that explores growing up as a twin when one is disabled and the other able-bodied. Kia has cerebral palsy, and everyone in her inner circle always called Kia's twin The Pretty One. Kia spent years in a vortex of self-hate until she took back her own narrative and spent more time focusing on loving herself. She started the hashtag Disabled and Cute to inspire others, and her memoir touches on the intersectionality of race and disability, finding romance, and it's done with a raw mix of humor and sorrow, and ultimately, joy. I found it refreshing, and it's definitely on my top reads thus far in 2022. And if memoir isn't your thing, there have been a whole slew of books released in the past few years with disabled protagonists by disabled writers. For middle grade, I recommend Wink by Rob Harrell, and for young adult, the Silence Between Us by Allison Gervais. Of course, there are way more books out there now covering disability, enough that there is something for everyone. Book Riot has a great list of all genres over at their site. So I guess what I'm saying is, the best way to truly understand the lived experiences of others is to drop preconceived notions of what disability means and diversify your bookshelves, viewing, and friendships. And as always, just listen. Stories from today's episode came from Muncie, Indiana and Des Moines, Iowa. We want to thank Hillcroft Services, Behavioral Associates of Indiana, 
and Principal Financial for organizing and contributing to facing projects in their communities. Sandy Pinnerup's story was written in collaboration with Jennifer Stanley and was performed by Beth Neri. Antonio Kiyoko's story was written in collaboration with Deidre Lane and was performed by Carl Frost. Carter Tharp's story was written in collaboration with Jamie Reese and was performed by Charlie Isaacs. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson, and until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates, providing intensive therapy, individualized academic instruction, and social skills training for children with autism. Behavior Associates analysts develop an individualized treatment plan for each child receiving services. Presenting sponsor of The Facing Project, more at behavioraba.com.